Pilgrim's Progress. We've mentioned that many times. It begins with, a, with the man named Christian, the Pilgrim, discovering news which causes him great alarm. He learns from a book that the city that he and his family is living in, the, the city of destruction, is going to be destroyed by fire from heaven. And so he goes to his wife, he goes to his children, and he, and he warns them, and they think he's gone mad. And, and so they, they just, as nighttime approaches, they put him to bed, hoping that he will wake up with a little more sanity the next morning. But when he wakes up, he's even more troubled, and he's wandering the fields, and he's sighing, and he's reading that book, and he's recognizing what's coming as revealed in that book. Now, in, in days of great spiritual darkness, and I think it's, we could venture to say we are in those days, preachers have a sobering task. Humankind lies under the same kind of judgment, the same certainty of judgment, and yet, sadly, the clear warning of judgment in preaching has largely disappeared. Uh, you, ha you hear very little about it, in fact, if you, if you examine a lot of sermons. And, and I think this change can be traced back, and I'm not the only one who says this. It's pretty much the consensus. It can tra be traced back to the late 1700s and, and the 1800s during the Age of Enlightenment when attacks upon Scripture's inspiration sprang from... Claims that human reason was above the Bible, was above the Scriptures. And the outcome was that anything in Scripture that did not comport with the reason uh, that was unreasonable to the natural mind began to be dismissed. So guess who has the authority in those uh, particular times? It, it's the human reason that has the authority. And should God graciously bring revival to the United States, and it would be gracious, uh, no, one, no one here deserves that, uh, there's one characteristic that we could expect to find. You, you find it every time there's been a great revival in history. Sinners will receive a, a deep sense, maybe even a restored sense of the greatness, the, the majesty of God, and the righteousness of God, the heinousness of sin, and the certainty of coming judgment. In every great revival, if you study them, first of all, they were preceded with great revivals of prayer, and then the revivals themselves were fueled by this great sense of the greatness of God and the righteousness of God, the heinousness of sin, and the certainty of coming judgment. Jeremiah understood that as well. And that's what he's going after. He's now concluded his sermon at the Valley of Slaughter after finishing his sermon, the Temple Sermon. And Jeremiah realizes that Israel's only hope, Judah, to be perfectly um, strict here, uh, is, their only hope is for them to regain the fear of God and the hatred of sin. Both were sorely lacking with the majority of the people. Well, if you look with me in verse 4 of chapter 8, he just finished the sermon um, at the Valley of Slaughter, one of the darkest texts in all of Scripture. 
And in verse 4, God says to Jeremiah, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, When men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? Perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. It's as if God is astounded. Now we know God is omniscient. But we see these, these human-like emotions attributed to God. They're called anthropopathisms. So that we can understand God's view on sin, God's view on wickedness. And Jeremiah himself is astounded. Here's the issue here. Of course, when people fall down, they naturally get up. When people are going in the wrong direction, they naturally turn around. But not Israel. They have perfected the art of perpetual motion in the wrong direction. Away, away, away from the law of God. And the reason is given right here in verse 5. They hold fast to deceit. That word deceit will be found in Jeremiah 17 when Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Now, the way the heart can deceive you is when you allow your heart and you allow your reason to determine reality. When they are your authority rather than the Word of God. That's why Paul would say in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, because it's easy to be conformed to the pattern of this world. A fish doesn't know it's wet. And we're born into a world, a world system, that if we're not renewing our minds in that world system, that world system will become our normal. And therefore, we can deceive ourselves. And here's what he says. They hold fast to deceit. Now, in verse 6, Jeremiah, speaking for God, gives this valuation of their issue. He says, I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. And so Jeremiah here compares those who do not relent of their evil. And let me just say this. When we think of evil, we tend to think of those extreme uh, kind of sins. But if there's any sin that we, we hold tight to, we're, we're no different than the people here. It may be the sin of slander. It may be the sin of, of gossip. It, it, it could be any variety of sins that we rationalize. Well, that's, that's what he's addressing here. Men who say, what have I done? And he says, everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging into battle. What does he mean here? Well, war horses wear blinders as they go into war. Now, why do they wear blinders as they go into war? So that they will not be distracted, scared by the horrific sights of battle. And he says, that's like a person who is living in unrepentant sin. They are heading into destruction 
And yet they have those blinders on because their hearts are so steadfast on their sin. Like a war horse with blinders. And that's why moment by moment repentance is necessary. You know, the distinction between believers and unbelievers is not that believers don't sin while unbelievers sin. Now, certainly unbelievers should have a different character and believers should have a different walk and and they should sin less and they do sin less than unbelievers because we've been made a new creation. But that doesn't mean we don't sin. A major distinction, though, between believers and unbelievers is how we deal with our sin. One of the marks of a believer is a believer is notorious as a repenter. That's the vital sign of the believer. We're known for our repentance. That's what he's addressing here. There's no repentance. Now, presumptuous disobedience is bad enough. He, that's what he's addressing here. But now add to that intentional ignorance. Notice verse 7. He says, even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. He's speaking about migration. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. Other prophets also noticed that when it comes to acting sensibly, animals regularly outperform humans. So, for instance, there's so many examples for time's sake, we won't go there. But one example, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 1, verse 3, he says that the farmer's ox, the farmer's donkey, knows its owner better than Israel knows God. And Jeremiah observes that the bird migrations also preach a sermon to us. And so, in the the fall, in the autumn, these birds migrate to the south. And in the spring, they migrate, migrate back to the north. And he says, that preaches a sermon. They instinctively know the laws and obey the laws of nature set by their creator And this contrasts with God's rational image bearers who saw the impending signs of disaster but decided to do nothing to correct their path. In other words, to call Israel unbelieving Israel. We we, we also need to remember there was a remnant in Israel who were very faithful. Uh, So when I'm speaking here, I'm talking about unbelieving Israel. To call unbelieving Israel spiritual bird brains would have been a disgrace and insult to birds. That's what he's saying. And to us. Um, Or to call us bird brains would have been an insult to birds because oftentimes we're the same way. And in particular, Jeremiah blames Israel's spiritual ignorance, verse 7, on their ignorance of the Word of God. My people know not the rules of the Lord. Or maybe your translation reads decrees, which for them would have been primarily the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And I would say that indictment still stands. 
This should be the golden era of Bible knowledge. I mean, first of all, we have something that Israel did not have. We have both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, We have the full plan of redemption in Jesus Christ laid out for us. We have all of the Bible study tools. We have 2,000 years of church history and gleaning from the great minds in church history. We have the internet. We have everything. We have the printing press. We have more tools to learn our Bibles than in the history of the world. And yet, listen to this Pew Research data. Now, this is from 2017. I doubt it's any better in 2019. I couldn't find anything any, even more, any more recent. But in 2017, over 78% of Americans identify as Christian. I found that shocking. Of course, what Christian means, that's a, that's a whole different discussion. But 78% of Americans, over 78%, identify as Christian. And nearly, get this, 8 in 10 Americans, according to the Pew Research study, and Dr. Moeller swears by that Pew Research, nearly 8 in 10 Americans regard the Bible as either the literal Word of God or as inspired by God. But only 9% of Americans Read their Bible consistently. Nine out of a hundred. Now, if you believe, if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and you're not reading it, there is a massive disconnect. I mean, a massive disconnect. And there was a, mis- a, a, a disconnect with these people. They did not know the rules, the law of God. Of course, when a mass group of people are biblically illiterate. As Judah was at this time, the fault lies with the people, of course. Everyone is responsible to learn the Word of God. But as with Israel, sometimes it also falls on the spiritual leaders. Notice in verse 8. How can you say we are wise? He's turning his guns to the scribes here. And the law of the Lord is with us. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Not that the Bible is a lie, but their interpretation, their lying pens, as they expound on that word, turns it into a lie. Now, this is the first Old Testament reference for the scribes. It's the first time we see it in the Bible as a professional class. And it's not exactly clear at this point what their job descriptions were, but 2 Chronicles 34, 13 seems to indicate that they were priests and they were supposed to be experts in the law, but something had gone wrong. Paul told Timothy something even our kids know, but the scribes didn't. 2 Timothy 2, 15. What does that text say? Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Laura Sweden. Thank you for everyone who is... I give her props and she's not here. (laughs) Take a note. Note here, we are wise. When one boasts in his wisdom, 
That's a telltale sign he's probably not wise. And, and the foolishness is seen in that they are tampering with the word of God. The lying pen of the scribes. It reminds me of a, a text from 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says, We refuse to tamper with God's word. We refuse to tamper with God's word. You let God's word be God's word, and you're just the, you're the UPS pilot who gets that package to its destination without messing it up. And the scribes didn't understand that. Notice in verse 9. The wise men shall be put to shame. Again, these are the spiritual leaders. They shall be dismayed and taken. I wish every preacher in America had to read Jeremiah. And maybe there would be some fear worked in some of these guys who get up and, and give that nonsense that we hear oftentimes. They shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Now the Hebrew pronunciation for shame, you could spell it in English, bosh. And I think that's funny because one of my colleagues, who his door is right next to mine. His last name is Bosch, spelled this way, B-O-S-H. It's the word for shame. I'm going to tell him that tomorrow. <laughs> Thirty-five times this word is used in Jeremiah, 125 times in the Old Testament. It's also going to be found in chapter 8, verse 12. Judah evidently thought that just by possessing the law, Having the oracles of God, Paul addresses that in Romans 3, doesn't he? What, what was all that they needed? Being the people of the temple was all that they needed to be secure and right with God. And, and so in the hands of these scribes, God's law was being twisted into some covering for corruption. We, we tend to, I think we're going to get the, to the idea of what was being said here. We've already seen it in chapter 6. And so Jeremiah is putting his finger on a prevalent temptation that has never gone away. The amazing ability to pay lip service to the Bible while living in disobedience to it. Or paying lip service to the Bible while dismissing it and seeing it as irrelevant for your life. As evidenced by the lack of Bible reading and the lack of Bible study in many professing Christians' homes. Notice in verse 10. Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. What's he prophesying here? The Babylonian invasion. We know it came in three stages. 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then the, the really tough one was in 586 when the temple was destroyed. And the, the king went into exile, Jehoiakim. He says... Um, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. He seems to be saying that these priests were in it for financial, for material gain. So he's giving the people what they want to hear. Verse 11, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Saying, peace, peace, 
when there is no peace. So this seems to be getting at what they were preaching. Judgment's not coming. You're the people of God. You are the people of the promises. Look how faithful you are in your religious duties and responsibilities. Judgment is not coming to you. You don't need to listen to these prophets. They've lost their mind. That word healed is the word rapha. Uh, we, we know from Exodus that that is one of the Lord's names. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Well, these scribes, it's a different kind of healing. In fact, that word is used 14 times in Jeremiah. But it's a healing with a medicine to address the wrong diagnosis. I don't know if you've ever taken medicine when you were wrongly uh, diagnosed. But that's what is happening here with these, these scribes. They've wrongly diagnosed the problem, and therefore they're giving them medicine for the wrong diagnosis. And he says, peace, peace. Um, that's verbatim to what we saw in chapter 6. When preachers trivialize God's holiness... We end up with a trivial view of sin, don't we? When we trivialize God's majesty, we, we end up with trivial worship. When we trivialize His truth, we end up with a trivial understanding of the Word of God. And when we uh, trivialize God's judgment, we trivialize the gospel. He undermined the gospel. In a great book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells says this, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. Again, I, I, I spoke about that this morning because I was thinking about this, this quote. And the word glory is the word for weight, doxa, weight. And so when, when God is seen in His glory, He's seen as weighty. That, that, that's, that's what we're talking about here. He says, but in our times, God appears weightless. He has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence, like 78% of the country being Christian, may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. It's indicting, isn't it? His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet, sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. And that's where they were. And one of the marks of this, notice verse 12, were they ashamed when they committed abominations? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. That is a haunting picture where you get to the point where you don't even turn red with your wickedness. There's no shame. You have, you have gone beyond your capacity. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown says the Lord. Now the first occurrence of shame, bosh, is found in Genesis 2 verse 25 when Adam and Eve sinned against God. It can be an objective idea where uh, you're being put to shame 
are subjectively, you are being ashamed. Neither one. I think it's the subjective rather than the objective here. They, they are objectively shameful, but they don't even have the capacity to be subjectively shamed. Verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine. Of course, we know Israel was planted as a vineyard, as, as a vine, right? And that makes sense of Jesus' words in John 15 when he says, I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. Israel had been planted as a vine, but now there's no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Now, the theology of Deuteronomy promises blessing for the obedience of faith to the Mosaic Covenant and curses for disobedience. And verse 13 is reiterating that warning. He is saying, remember those stipulations in the law, you've broken them. You're under the curse of sin, under the curse of the law. And as a result, the chapter ends on, well, if everything else hasn't been disturbing, this last part is even more disturbing. Verse 14, why do we sit still, gather together, let us go into the fortified cities and perish there? For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish. He has given us poison water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. It's easy to imagine that many will say the same thing on the day of judgment. My pastor said that there wouldn't be any hell. My counselor, my mentor, told me that I would be accepted just the way I am. That's what seems to be saying, uh, the, the people seem to be saying here. And he says, God will give Ju uh, Judah poisoned water which is a metaphor for judgment. They had hoped for peace. They had hoped for healing, but there was only terror. Behold, terror. And then that passage closes out, verse 16. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. Now, Dan, if you've ever been to Israel, is the northern part of Israel. I've been there. It's beautiful. Waterfalls, glorious waterfalls, but that's where the Babylonians were to come down. They're coming down from the north, from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. He had a way with words, didn't he? The master metaphor. These ref verses reflect the panic and the despair of the people at the approach of the enemy. Now, th that judgment that came on Israel and that judgment that came on Judah, that's just a foretaste of the greater judgment that's going to await everyone uh, in, the, in the last day. But these were fearful judgments. And, and so the battle metaphors changed from the speed of the horse to the creeping terror of the snake. God will send poisonous snakes to them. Now, this is metaphorical language. Uh, perhaps literal snakes are being used in this, but he's referring to a people. 
He's referring to a nation, the Babylonians, who were going to come down on them. The point, if death does not come by the horses, from the warriors on these horses, it's going to come another way. Death is inevitable. But don't forget, there is an anecdote for spiritual snake bites. I'd like us to close with that and we'll go into business session. I want to give you hope before we go into business session. Hopeless business sessions are not fun. So we're going we're gonna to give you some hope as we go into business session. In Numbers, we see that the promise of snakes in Jeremiah is not the first time that God sent snakes to punish Israel. In Numbers 21, verse 6, listen to this. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. These were literal fiery serpents. Whereas I think in Jeremiah, he's speaking metaphorically of a people. But in Numbers, it was a literal, it was serpents. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. But the Lord himself provided the anecdote in his grace through the intercession of Moses, right? Isn't that beautiful typology? In verse 8 of Numbers 21, listen to this. And the word, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Now, for those of us who know the gospel of John, we recognize that Jesus came to reveal God's ultimate anecdote for spiritual snake bite, which all of us have. We have that problem outside of the anecdote. In John 3, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said, That anecdote... Up there that Moses lifted up on the pole pointed to a greater anecdote. The Son of Man must be lifted up. How will he be lifted up? On a cross. And he would take the bite. He would take the bite from the serpent. Because of our judgment, because of our sin... And then he says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the context for the next verse. I think most of you have heard this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's judgment cannot be charmed. It will bite The bite is guaranteed, and the bite is deadly on all sin. No sin gets out of here without being judged. But everyone who looks to the anecdote, the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that's why Jeremiah is so important. There's no making sense of Jesus until we've made sense of our sin and God's judgment on our sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. We are in murky, dark waters, but we need that because the more we recognize the heinousness of sin, the more we will love the sin bearer. 
We will love the one who overcame our sin by his vicarious substitutionary work, fulfilling the law's demands, and then taking the cross. And Lord, receiving the, the snake bite that we deserve, judgment. But being raised from the grave, reversing that judgment for those who would believe. And we are those who believe. And we pray, Lord, even as we believe, help our unbelief. And Lord, as we go now into business session, may we have the mind of Christ, appropriated to us by the Spirit of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.